Welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast with your hosts, Richard Hill and Matthew Darlitz. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. I'm Matthew Darlitz, Editor-in-Chief of the Science of Psychotherapy and as always here with Managing Editor Richard Hill. Yes, that's me. I'm here. Uh, one day I'm just going to say nothing and, and freak you out. <laughs> but no, it's great. It's, uh, as always, here we are. I, mean, I know people love listening to our podcast, but I just love doing them. I mean, it's we exciting, uh, yeah. we get this every week, the, the education benefits and the awareness benefits. Uh, I noticed the other day uh, when we were talking, you know, someone said, oh, gee, you know all those people. You, you recognize those names. And mm. that's what comes. From attending, so thank you very much, everybody, for listening to the podcast. Uh, I hope yeah. you're getting this value that we're getting. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, we get to meet all of these really cool people from around the world. Speaking of which, today um, we're going to speak to uh, another really cool person, Dr. Larry Ozawara. Uh, he's a psychiatrist who specialises in the collaboration between inpatient and outpatient care. He's got extensive experience in working with patients with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and patients with serious and persistent mental illness. And he's got this great program as well for follow-up care, which we'll, we'll talk about during the show. And just before we go off to Larry over in um, in uh, LA, I think, or he's in San Francisco, hmm. uh, we got a really a good bit of feedback from one of the members the other day about the courses that we put forward, about the suggestions and about the type of work that we're going to do. Hmm. And they enjoyed the longer courses and they were really good when he had time. But what he yeah. really liked was getting this information about these short, just one hour, two hour things that he could possibly do, you know, one each week. So mm. that's something that we're sending out in our emails, isn't it? Absolutely. So I've got lined up a few dozen potential courses that we're going to be putting out there. Just one hour, two hour reading or reading plus a video sort of course. And so bite-sized courses, you know, is, is you, you're not committing to, you know, a six-hour webinar or anything like that. These are short courses, easily digestible, and we hope that that will serve you well. We will keep working to make sure there's a certificate that you can get. Oh. So not all of them have got certificates yet, but a large number of them do, and we'll mm -hmm. keep building that up so that you can use those with your association for continuing education points, which is gives it a, a double value. One is the learning and two is the uh, satisfaction of your professional requirements. So, talking about professional requirements, we need to go across to the uh, the United States and talk to Dr. Larry Ozawara. Dr. Ozawara, thank you for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. It's so great to see you. It's great to be here. Thank you. And uh, Richard here on uh, the sort of a little bit of a distance from Matt on the the Sydney side of Australia, but uh, I've been very excited to, to get to speak to you and uh, lovely to meet you. Some people listen to us on the podcast, but we also have some people watching on the video so they can see you have a fabulous bookshelf. My God, <laughs> I'm embarrassed about my background. But uh, but anyway, it's really lovely to, to have you here and to talk to you about the work that you do. Uh, thank you so much for having me. So I am a psychiatrist by training. Um, I spent a number of years in medical school and residency. And then after that, I uh, took on some academic positions for a few years. Um, in the last couple of years, I sort of transitioned into more on the, the corporate side of things, focusing on how we can best deliver care to those who are underserved and provide access to care. 
That's wonderful. And um, I understand that there's a number of areas that um, you, you sort of focus on, you specialize in. Do you want to sort of touch on what they are? Sure. So one of the areas that I've focused on previously was more on the inpatient side. So for somebody who has depression or bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, who needs to be hospitalized for any number of reasons, maybe they're suicidal or maybe um, they're just suffering from uh, an exacerbation of their illness. Um, those people get admitted to the hospital and they see a psychiatrist like me where we get them started on their treatment and then get stabilized and back into the community. Um, in, the, in the last several months or a couple of years, I've been focusing mostly on the severely mentally ill population. So that includes uh, schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, among other conditions. And uh, right now, I'm the senior medical director at Valera Health, where we are actually providing ways to engage those individuals and deliver highly effective care, um, whether it's through frequent contact through case management or um, individual therapy or group therapy. We're sort of helping people transition uh, through their journey and their mental illness um, towards stability. I'd love to get into um, schizophrenia, if you wouldn't mind, up front. And um, would you mind stepping us through um, the, the whole approach to schizophrenia from the initial diagnosis and then what happens in terms of you know, treatment, treatment protocols and stabilisation? Yeah, because I can sure. just add, add my bit, in to, 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 wow. which is what I was going to say, because I had a, a, a Facebook discussion or a discussion group and uh, someone was being very opinionated about a lot of things and then uh, I brought up schizophrenia and they said oh well of course if we if, if I had a schizophrenic this is a, a psychotherapist if a schizophrenic uh, person came in uh, you know I'd immediately refer them to a psychiatrist and being very sort of a little pompous and I just wrote back yep. and said well how would you know and I think this is something that's interesting. So in the context of what Matt's asking, as they come in, how do you screen? What are you doing? So this mm -hmm. um, uh, To help a, a psychotherapist um, a, a assist their capacity to recognise that this may be a component of their, of their client's issue. Sure. So there's both two very interesting and very great questions. Um, the first is kind of stepping back and looking at what schizophrenia is. And the way that I would conceptualise it is, uh, a diagnosis or disorder of um, mostly a distortion of reality and some cognitive disturbances, right? So that distortion of reality or the psychosis component really takes the form of either hallucinations, like hearing voices that aren't necessarily there or seeing things that aren't necessarily there, um, and also delusions. So thinking something that is true when it actually isn't. Um, that's, for some people, harder to figure out because there's no way to know for sure if something isn't true, right? Mm. So it's, it's pretty hard to challenge somebody on that one, right? Yeah. And I, I once had somebody say um, to me when I was seeing them in the emergency room is, it's not a delusion if it's true. And I said, well, the, that's a fair argument. I can't really argue with that one. But it's really um, someone who has an unusual belief that just really can't be based in reality. And so that, that is kind of the, the psychotic symptoms. Um, on the other side are the cognitive ones. So that's um, really a disturbance in how they think. And the problem with that is that you can't really know how what somebody's thinking, right? You can't read minds. Um, the way that you can kind of get a sense of that is to look at their speech and look at their behavior as a reflection of how they're thinking cognitively. 
So the disorganized speech and disorganized behavior in combination with the delusions and the hallucinations really make up the bulk of the what we call positive symptoms of schizophrenia. And when we say positive, we're not thinking uh, these are great symptoms to have. It just means that there's <laughs> the, pres- the presence of symptoms that should not be there, right? Yeah, so positive is um, the addition of uh, the symptoms that are in, in addition, yeah. Right, exactly. Um, on the other hand, there are some negative symptoms that are a little bit harder to catch because they are symptoms that um, are lacking. So people yeah. who are not motivated, who are not social, who are very withdrawn, they're not doing the normal things that, that a person would, would typically be doing. Those are really the negative symptoms of schizophrenia. And as it turns out, those are much harder to treat than the positive ones. Um, And in terms of kind of assessing and and thinking about it, one is you have to look at the symptoms at face value and say like, okay, this person is maybe not telling me that they have paranoia, but I can tell based on my interactions with them that they seem very concerned that somebody is out to get them. Now, again, we can't know for sure if there is really somebody out to get them, right? Um, but based on the, the kinds of things that they're saying, we might be able to figure that out. One of the things that we we find is, is often the case, especially earlier on in the illness, is that the person who is experiencing those psychotic symptoms often don't have the awareness to know that that's what they're experiencing. So you might get into conversations or <laughs> unfortunately even arguments with somebody where you're trying to tell them, no, 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 that's not actually happening when they're very convinced that it is. Um, and that that is probably one of the hardest or the biggest barriers to getting them the treatment that they really need. You know, as I remember the, the, that extraordinary scene in the film A Beautiful Mind, uh, right. which was talking about that. And when he was, when the, the chap came in to say, uh, you're up for a Nobel Prize, uh, he turned to one of the other students that obviously he knew was a real student and said, uh, excuse me, is that man really here? Yeah. So he'd learned how to, um, th- that he had delusions and that he needed to manage that. Right. Uh, so I suppose now that's really getting to a question of, of treatment and how you help people engage. Exactly. So the treatment is, is crucial. Um, the mainstay of treatment is really with antipsychotic medications. And those have been around since about the 50s or 60s, starting with medications that were heavy in terms of side effect burden, trying to come up with from the first generation of antipsychotic medications, which had a lot of um, uh, side effects around movement disorders and the like, to what we call the second generation antipsychotics, which reduced some of the first Medic uh, generation issues, but created issues of, of their own, um, including things like weight gain and everything that comes with that. Um, and so over time, um, we've sort of moved towards the second generation antipsychotics. But like I said, they're still with a considerable amount of side effects for the most part. So the treatment really kind of gets at figuring out which one of those medications is going to be your best bet. We know that the medications are actually pretty effective. That's not the issue. Some are a little bit more effective than others, and none of them are 100% effective. What we do see, though, is that getting someone to stay on the medication is really the hard part. Um, we saw in the KD, there was a KD trial, I forget the acronym right now, but this was a study done a few decades back where they compared that first-generation antipsychotic. Um, they used one in particular, which had a balance of the, the various side effects, 
they compared it to um, a few second generation antipsychotics because they wanted to know if all these new drugs that were coming out were actually any better than the older ones, Um, especially because whenever a new drug comes out, they cost a ton of money, right? Um, And so they wanted to figure out like, well, is it worth switching over to the second generation antipsychotics? What they found is like the, the medications actually performed pretty similarly. There, there was one, olanzapine or Zyprexa, that performed a little bit better than some of the other ones. Um, but what they found was the, that one was also the most associated with um, weight gain and yeah. sedation, right? Um, and so that one of the interesting things about that study is the, the outcome that they were looking at was how long somebody was willing to take that medication, which is kind of an interesting outcome, right? Um, and the reason that's important is the way that you know if a medication is going to help somebody is A, does it work? And B, will you take it, right? No medication, no matter how effective it is, is not going to be a good one if somebody stops it after a couple of days. Um, so the Zyprex or Olanzapine showed some promise that when you're balancing how effective it is versus how tolerable it is, um, then it was a little bit more worth it than some of the other ones, right? Um, mm. So one of the difficulties that we have in psychiatry just across the board is getting somebody to stick with treatment. Um, and that probably depends on how far along they are in the process, right? If somebody's in considerable distress and they're acutely symptomatic so that their suffering is so apparent, you give them a little bit of medication, their suffering goes down, right? Because their delusions are getting better they're probably more likely in some ways to stick with medications for the short term. Over time, as they get better and the symptoms start to go away, there's not an incentive, right? All all that they're experiencing is the side effects that are happening or accumulating over time and not necessarily realizing all of the benefits that they're getting from the medication. So I'm guessing that in a supportive role we were talking to psychotherapists that um, this is one of the key aspects is to, to maintain um, the psychopharmacology. Right. So there, there are a couple of things that can be helpful. One is to kind of reinforce compliance. Um, and that can be done in a number of ways is to sort of help the person look at the pros and cons of taking the medication, help them develop insight into their condition and the ways in which their psychotic symptoms were affecting their ability to function, right? So for for somebody who maybe they weren't psychotic, but they were acutely manic, and they I had somebody who bought and crashed an Aston Martin. And I said, okay, so that happened. You were manic. Do you want to take your medications now? <laughs> um, that might be an easier conversation to have. Um, even with that case, that person is still not willing to take the medications, <laughs> which is a testament to how serious the, the condition can get and how impaired the insight can be. And it might be that a, a, a therapist, a psychotherapist, is uh, mm-hmm. seeing the patient more often. Uh, right. they, they might have you know weekly or fortnightly visits, whereas the, the checking on their medication and those processes, and even if they're taking a, uh, an injection, uh, these long-term injections now, uh, there's sort of a month between visits to the to the medical expert. So the psychotherapist could be uh, and a very important person in the management and also the observance of the change of the changes exactly. Uh, uh, Both yeah. of those things. You threw me off by the by the use of Fortnite, which <laughs> I don't tend to use over on these parts. But um, yeah. yes, it's absolutely right. You might be seeing the person 
four times as frequently as a psychiatrist does. And monthly visits, especially, you know, depending on the insurance and the availability, you might be looking at like every other month for a psychiatrist or every three months for a psychiatrist. And if you as a therapist are seeing this person week after week, you'll have a better trusting relationship and you'll be able to notice differences that the psychiatrist probably wouldn't be able to pick up on right away. Um, So that's an excellent opportunity to not just think about saying like, you got to stay on meds, you got to stay on meds, you got to stay on meds, but just figuring out what the person wants and what the barriers are. So if it's somebody who says, look, I want to be able to work again, that's my goal. You think about, well, what's getting in the way? Is it the illness? Are you getting so paranoid that you're leaving your job and um, getting fired left and right? That's one thing. Or is it the treatment? So maybe the illness is under control, but your medications are so sedating that you are sleeping in and not getting to work on time, right? And if you're looking at both of those aspects, both the, the illness itself and its treatment, and figuring out what are the barriers to achieving what this person wants, then you build that alliance with that individual and you can help them kind of achieve their goal by addressing which area is the most um, uh, the most of a hindrance to, to their recovery and their goals. Yeah. Now I'm wondering, going back to diagnosing, there's a, obviously a spectrum of, of, of things that we're looking at. Symptomatology is sure. um, from mild to severe, I, I'm assuming. Now, is there any correlation between the severity of symptoms um, from the outset to compliance, um, you know, through through therapy? So, the most severe so, clients yeah. are they are they the most difficult when it comes to keeping them on meds? That's a great question, and you have to think about it both from the inpatient and the outpatient side. Um, they can be the most difficult to stabilize. I don't necessarily think that it always translates into being the most difficult to maintain. I think it depends on um, how bad the illness made them and what the cost of having the illness might have been, right? And so the worse the outcome was when they were acutely ill, maybe that serves as sort of a deterrent to stopping the medications, right? Um, I also tend to see people who are... um, on the more intelligent side, kind of not only form some sort of self-denial, but like try to get other people around them to sort of not see it as as big of a deal as it is, right? And so they're able to justify their symptoms. They're able to um, talk themselves out of medication or manipulate people into lowering the doses of their medications um, or what have you. And I think that that tends to be one of the biggest barriers and those are the people who typically have the most to lose, right? So an executive who has a manic episode might have more serious consequences in some ways than somebody who, you know, isn't isn't working at the time. Yes, and it's important there that there's a bit of a, in the conversation where mm-hmm. we're discussing both schizophrenia and this bipolar type of right. aspect, and and they have a crossover. It's a bit of a Venn diagram uh, yeah. with with that. And a term that we use uh, with a number of these areas, with autism, with ADHD, with uh, schizophrenia, with bipolar, is this term high functioning. Um, Mm -hmm. So this is what you're saying about the more intelligent. Uh, But functioning is, is, is the key goal of the individual. Well, I think one of the things is to think about um, where they are in the journey of their illness, right? So somebody who has a first episode is going to require a lot more intensive work around 
both identifying what's going on, developing some insight, and then coming to terms with the condition, right? So I think I tend to see more people earlier on who have a lot of denial. um, And those people are having a difficult time adjusting from life as usual to now life managing a new condition. Just as if somebody was diagnosed with like diabetes at an early age or cancer at an early age, it's a, it's a transition, it's a role transition. Um, and so this new role can look a lot of different ways. Um, I think a lot of people don't want to have the label of having a psychiatric illness. Um, and I think that that is one thing that presents itself as a challenge. And I don't think that people like the idea of committing themselves to long-term treatment, right? I I can't even take, you know, something like an antibiotic for a week. <laughs> that's a that's a commitment for me, right? Yeah. So taking a medication once or twice or three times a day, you know, indefinitely is is a hard thing to well, no pun intended, swallow, right? Um, but I think one of the things that I help people figure out is, look, this is not a death sentence. This is not the end of the world. This is something that we're going to manage together. And I, I like to use the term management because it is not something that you have to undergo or ignore or anything like that. You just have to figure out how to um, treat it like you're treating any other condition that you're you're experiencing. Um, and one of the things that can help is to sort of reestablish what the goals are, see if those goals are reasonable. And like I said earlier, help them meet those goals as effectively as you can. Um, over the course of the illness, I think what happens, and you had mentioned this earlier, is people start to have some recognition of what's going on. They might not fully say that this is like, you know, psychosis or or what have you, but they'll say something like, okay, my, the voices are back. I'm hearing them again. I'll take the medication. And usually what we'll see after, you know, the second or third or fourth, unfortunately, um, episode, they kind of have a sense of what's going on, what needs to be done to get out of the hospital and how to move forward. What do you find in the area of group work or perhaps some collaborative work between patients? Is that something you encourage or that emerges spontaneously? Both. I, I think, you know, it's it's funny. Most people don't want to hear it from a psychiatrist. I'm, I'm sorry to say that, but they like to hear things from their peers, right? So one of the things that we see a lot of the times in the hospital setting is a lot of the hospital-based work is group therapy. And I've seen over the years that people tend to do better and process differently and come to acceptance faster if they see someone else who's like them, who's getting help and is understanding their own illness and saying, hey, I'm managing this, so can you. And I think they're they're much more attuned to that. So the, the more that we can encourage people to find communities and groups of people who are experiencing the things that they're experiencing, um, the, the better. In terms of um, intensity and frequency um, of care, mm-hmm. now I would imagine in, um, in the normal medical uh, sort of situations um, that these people could fall through the gaps and um, and that we need to create, which I think you have, um, systems where that frequency of care is provided. Do you want to speak on that? Absolutely. So one of the biggest gaps in care that we see is immediately after a hospital stay. 
So if you imagine somebody, you know, gets so paranoid that they barricaded themselves in the room and they stopped eating for three days and um, they're to the point where they either need to go to the hospital or something terrible is going to happen. They get into the hospital, they get started on medications. One of the wonderful things about medications for bipolar disorder and schizophrenia is that they're they're reasonably effective um, and you can stabilize somebody in a short-ish amount of time and short is kind of depends on who's who's asking the question or looking into it. Um, and then you transition them uh, to the outpatient setting, right? So you schedule them appointment with a psychiatrist and a therapist and you say, I wish you the best of luck, right? Um, but what if that appointment is two months out? What if that person, as soon as they get out, maybe they couldn't fill the medication at the pharmacy? Maybe they had a side effect that they couldn't tolerate and they didn't have anybody to talk to. Um, maybe they just needed some encouragement to say like, Hey, this is okay. We'll get you through it. Right. And so we see a lot of people drop off after the first you know, 30 days or so of their hospital stay. And then what happens, they get back into their illness, they get back into the hospital. Um, and it can be both a financial burden to society, but also a cost to that individual whose life is repeatedly disrupted because, the treatment is just not going well, right? So what we have figured out are models to ensure that people get connected to care very quickly. And, and in fact, within seven days of their hospital stay. So what we do is we work with um, various hospitals. We're based in New York. We um, partner with them to say, hey, refer these people to us. We will do an assessment. We'll make sure that they're safe. We'll check in to see how they're doing with their medications to see if they have any questions. Um, and then we can get them started with a therapist who has experience working with this population and uh, somebody prescribed medications who can see that person actually frequently. So what we do is we say, look, you just got started on a new medication. You're just entering treatment. Let's do your therapy once a week. Let's do your um, medication management once a week or once every other week. And let's also get you a case manager for touch points in between who can ask you like, hey, how did your appointment go? Hey, I saw that you missed with your therapist. Do you want me to help you reschedule? Um, Or are you having trouble getting to a pharmacy? Um, What we found in that program, that model, is that we've not only reduced hospitalization readmission rates so that the number of times somebody has to go back in the hospital goes down. When they do go back in the hospital, they're actually there for a shorter period of time because they're a little bit more stable than they would be otherwise. And it's been very successful. Um, The other cool thing about it is we do the entire thing digitally. So we are a virtual platform. We do our sessions by video. And most people would think that that would be suboptimal for this population. But lo and behold, it actually works, I think, better than than in person. And part of that is by doing it virtually, you're, you're eliminating a couple of access... Uh, barriers to um, accessing care, right? One is transportation. If somebody can't get to their appointment, they're not going to go, right? Um, And two is just logistics, right? So if they can do it literally from bed, then they're much more likely to comply with their appointments than if they have to like figure out where to go and what to do and and all of those things. So we make it a lot easier for people to transition um, into outpatient care. 
One of the things we found uh, in some of the looks looking around, uh, particularly from uh, in some of the work I've done as a supervisor, talking to therapists who, who experience this sort of work and, and also some uh, therapists who did their sort of field work, was yep. homeless shelters that homeless shelters dealt with this really, they're sort of at the coal face. Um, mm. And um, there would be, that. that is an interesting place. Is there yeah. any integration or interaction with uh, those sorts of areas where a lot of people with mental health issues tend to congregate? Right. And so that's a good point. A lot of homeless individuals do do experience mental illness. And so that might be uh, contributing factor to homelessness, or it could also be the result of being homeless, right? It's more likely to cause certain conditions. Um, we do try our best to interact with homeless shelters, but it's hard because, you know, if they're, um, if you're trying to do things virtually and you're trying to access a shelter and get a hold of the person who's in that shelter it becomes complicated, but as much as shelters can do to integrate behavioral health within the shelter system itself, the better off people are going to be. So that might be just having a case manager who is staffed at the, the shelter, right? And that person can kind of help them figure out if they need to get appointments with providers, if they need to get help with housing, if they need to get help with like food stamps, um, that kind of thing. And um, I think if we focus more efforts on that population, I think they would be much better off. One of the things that's in your bio uh, and, and uh, so where we learn about you as we go, but you do, uh, you have a, an attention that you give to the uh, LGBTQI community. And uh, I, it, it always interests me uh, the difficulties or the differences or the specific types of uh, responses and approaches you have to have with different areas of the community, but particularly those who also have the additional difficulty of being a minority group or perhaps even uh, uh, in, in certainly in some areas of different countries, they can actually be a, a, an oppressed group. So uh, what have you found in your work there? Is it uh, everybody's has a similarity, uh, people have differences, uh, or just individuals. Uh, what What is your experience working with these varied communities? Right. And I think that there are certainly some similarities, but I, I would characterize every individual as an individual. Um, there are some people who are in various stages of their transition, if they're in the transgendered community. Um, and so in working with that community, what we see is... Um, trying to figure out their own suffering, their own experience, but also thinking about the impact that society has, right? So even within the field of psychiatry, we've kind of changed our definitions and our diagnoses of like homosexuality, for example, gender identity disorder versus gender dysphoria. And so you've seen the DSM change over the years as a reflection of new data, new research, and just societal changes in general. Um, but it's interesting because in the trans community, it's one of the conditions where um, society's impact on that individual is just as important as everything else. And so creating a safe place for um, the LGBTQ community, I think, is first and foremost the most important thing, because without that safety, it's really hard for them to recover from any mental illness that they're actually experiencing. Um, and two is to sort of think about um, what are their, you know, short-term and long-term goals? If your goal is to help them through the transition process, for example, um, thinking about different 
um, experiences that they face and how to overcome those obstacles, I think is, is really important. Yeah. Looking at some of those, 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 um, what the individual has to deal with. Right. I mean, I, I've got a, a, a particular client who's, uh, functions reasonably well, but if I were going to use the categories that the DSM gives us, I would I would say that she has a degree of ADHD. She mm-hmm. uh, is probably on the spectrum to some degree. She has childhood trauma, probably complex trauma, and probably uh, sexuality based, but mm-hmm. certainly in um, dominance based because of the ADHD and the ASD. The teachers were yeah. always putting her out of the class. So we have developmental uh, frustrations. We right. have. Uh, uh, a number of, um, uh, therefore, anxiety and depression. It's not bipolar, mm. but she rises uh, and falls on that. And uh, blow me down, but um, she's now suffering uh, because of other, obviously, biological issues. She's had some Epstein-Barr in her youth. She's got oh. long COVID. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. actually, and and so employment is now very very difficult. Now these mm-hmm. this is a pretty highly complex case, and I've got to tell right. you, I, I've got <laughs> I'm I'm learning, and this is I'm listening very very carefully to a lot of things you're mm-hmm. saying because I'm also looking mm-hmm. for delusional uh, aspects. So you get sometimes these patients who have this this rolling series of of interruptions. They seem to manage one thing, and then another thing pulls them down. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. What um, what sort of experience or thoughts uh, or words of wisdom for me? <laughs> uh, I'll have to charge you for that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, uh, quick, quick session. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think um, it's hard when there's when there's multiple competing things, and I think this is true, especially primary care. You sort of um, identify with the individual. What are the one or two most things important things to you, right? And then figuring out as a clinician, what are the most important things to you as a clinician? Um, And for you, it might be what is the most dangerous thing, right? So somebody who is suicidal, that might be top priority for you, may or may not be top priority for them. And so you have to sort of align with um, coming together and figuring out how to prioritize these things. And then it's just one thing at a time. Um, There are some conditions in psychiatry that we can treat sort of simultaneously you start one medication you get a pretty reasonable and quick response you add on another medication Um, i think in the psychotherapy realm it's going to be a lot of work focusing on like okay you know maybe now is not a great time to focus on trauma let's figure out how to work on coping skills and then we can sort of revisit the trauma once we're out of this particular crisis one of the issues that you probably experience that comes up is one crisis leads to another crisis leads to another crisis and you never get to the thing that you actually wanted to address, but that's kind of the, the nature of things, I suppose. So you just, you mentioned um, suicide there and I, and if I could mm-hmm. just backtrack a little bit in our conversation about schizophrenia mm-hmm. now is, is suicidality, is, is that a serious concern in that, in the schizophrenic population? It's a very serious concern. So we know that, um, there is at least a 10% rate of suicide uh, attempts or or completed suicide in that population. One of the things that we see as uh, risk factors is say, suppose somebody is in college, they have their first psychotic break, maybe they're at Harvard or Stanford or what have you. And then you had to pull them out of school and they can't really return back to their normal functioning. 
there is this phenomenon of what we call post-psychotic depression, where that experience, whether it's the, the medications that's bringing them down or just the whole role transition, as I was describing earlier, is really a setup for somebody experiencing a really severe depressive episode. And that's a very important time to kind of make sure that that person's okay. Um, and so that's one of the times where suicidal ideation and behaviors is um, more likely to rear its ugly head. The other I would say is uh, really when anybody has voices that is telling that are telling them to harm themselves or harm their other people, and they don't have the insight to know that they are voices. So the psychosis is very strong, but the awareness or insight is lacking. That is also, um, you know, a high risk category and, and one where you should be very um, careful in assessing for suicidal ideation. And I would imagine this is where your case manager um, is absolutely yeah. vital for that continual absolutely. contact. Yeah. Right. Okay. Wonderful. Yes, I, I was very uh, uh, interested in the. It was a. It was an anecdote from one of my uh, supervisees, yeah. but uh, it was at a homeless shelter, and one of the the, the members, and and she was she was doing her, uh, her sort of prac work there, so thrown into the deep end, and she was told that this was not uncommon. Um, wow. But certainly, one of the one of the uh, the guests was well, what freaking out? We just simply was was just unable to cope. Was losing was was uh, being violent to others, violent to themselves, and uh, they had a particular uh, medication. It was a, a drug. I mean, we call it a depot. I don't know whether that's, but it's yeah, just yeah. a it's just a, a long acting adjustment. Yeah, long acting, and it's a multiple uh, a multiple dose thing. And the the purpose mm -hmm. of it is to to just bring everything down because, of course, everything's beyond beyond management. And yeah. she said that. Uh, so the, the 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 guest came came down, settled, and of course became quite quite sort of uh, sedated, quite dopey. But she sat there, and after a oh, it was only about fifteen or twenty minutes. She had, and this guest turned to to my supervisee and mm -hmm. said, "Thank you." Mm -hmm. It was it was a really. Um, Wonderful expression of the importance yep. of interpersonal engagement. Mm -hmm. um, and it was because the injection, yes, all the stuff, yes, but that someone was sitting with them at the point where they were able to express their, their gratitude. Mm -hmm. And gratitude, we know, yeah. is a wonderful, uh, a wonderful thing to have. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's absolutely right. I've definitely had cases where, um, you know, in the midst of their angst and suffering and psychosis, they're, they're having a distortion of reality for sure, but they're, they're just not able to sort of recognize that they actually need treatment. And so sometimes it's necessary to give that treatment, even if sometimes it's against their will, knowing that, you know, it might be the right thing to do so that they can get the relief of their suffering that they really need. Um, I've had plenty of people, so I had one case in particular where, um, she developed her first manic episode. We treated her for a little bit. We thought she was stable enough. She got discharged from the hospital. She came back a couple of weeks later and I said, this time we're gonna we're gonna keep you here as long as we possibly can. She the first minute that she saw me, she said, Oh, it's you again. She walks away and slams the door in my face. <laughs> um, and wouldn't talk to me. It was so uncooperative. And we worked together for a few weeks. And boy, I can tell you, I, I was dreading every time I went into the room to talk to her. Um, but it was necessary, right? And so what happened was um, I was in the hospital setting 
we moved her to the intensive outpatient where you go um, for three days a week for three hours a day. I was her psychiatrist in the intensive outpatient program. I don't know if it was the the masochist in me or what, but I agreed to do that and sort of follow her for the next few months after her discharge from the hospital stay. Um, we got her um, boyfriend to come to some of our sessions. We got her mom to fly from China to come see her. We got her sister to fly in from New York. We had a family session and every single person, including the patient herself, was very appreciative that we actually kept her in the hospital as long as we did and sort of forced her hand into to, you know, sticking with the treatment. So that was incredibly rewarding. Um, <laughs> I don't know how how <laughs> I would be able to do that again, but you know, I, I think that that it was it's a testament to exactly what you were just saying. Yes, and sounds like you need to employ a lot of creativity on the fly right. as well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so as we as we sort of round this out to a close, mm -hmm. um, I'm just wondering: um, is there anything sort of final words you want to leave um, for our listeners? You know, one thing that, that we sort of touched upon, but we didn't explore too much is um, somebody's feelings around not just their diagnosis, but their treatment, the medications. Um, I'll give you an example. So I had someone um, I was treating in an outpatient setting. We were doing a combination of medication management, but also some psychodynamic psychotherapy. Um, and during the course of our treatment, I switched them from an SSRI um, over to a different medication. And what he told me one day was he was able to cry. And I was like, well, is that a sign that you're getting better? Or you're getting worse. You don't seem to be too bothered about it. Right. Um, and so what we started to unpack was when he was growing up, his parents over and over and over told him or delivered the message that it was not okay to cry. And so when he was on the SSRI, one of the common kind of side effects for better or for worse is that um, it reduces your, your ability to, you know, cry. And so what he found was, even though he found the medication to be helpful, there's still something missing. And that experience of intense emotion was what was missing. And that was part of the thing that was keeping him down. So when we switched to another medication that was less likely to do that, he was able to experience the emotion in a way that um, he couldn't before. And that in and of itself, I think, made him feel a lot better. So Once talking to somebody about their experiences around and mm -hmm. psychodynamics around the medication, I think is, is really, really helpful. Yeah. And, and again, being open and creative, I think in, in your approach and, and being flexible. Wonderful. Yeah. Yes. And of course, uh, responsive as um, yes. is, is something that we're investigating a lot. And we think, uh, we think needs to be uh, given a, a greater uh, mm -hmm. deal of attention. I think in the yeah. future of uh, of therapeutic work, the uh, that individual, yeah, uh, and yeah. that's a that's a you know that's a wonderful um, sort of description that little story you did there of the balance between mm -hmm. management and uh, self effectiveness and and self satisfaction. Um, yeah, right. beautiful. Thank you yeah. so much. Thank you so yeah. much. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to meet with you guys. Thank you, Dr. Ozawara. It's been great connecting with you and um, and hearing all, all about uh, schizophrenia. And uh, we wish you all the best uh, with everything that you're doing. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Bye for now. I would just love to be treated by that guy.
<laughs> he, I mean, he just, yeah. it's just a really nice fella. Uh, you know, yep. he has a gentleness. He has that sort of, you know, like he was born to be a, a therapist of, of some sort. And uh, the sensitivity yep. that he was approaching um, prescription yes. work, because yes. I think it's, I, I think we have sort of, we have the pendulum swing of, you know, prescriptions are bad, you know, medication is the only thing. And he was just talking about, wow, you know, we need to look at it. We work with it. We see with the people. It gives me great hope for the the beneficial use of uh, psychopharmacology uh, yeah. along with uh, interpersonal work. Absolutely. I just love this program, Valera, and we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes so you can go mm, and check it mm. out yourself. Uh, what a great program. Um, you're giving, uh, you know, his patients uh, really good follow-up care, which is so needed in some of these populations that we're talking about in terms of schizophrenia and bipolar and so forth. Yes. And this thing of in-person work where they've got a number of different people, but also using the internet and using the uh, direct access to people where they are in their moment. Um, uh, yeah. So we're, we're really, as uh, you were suggesting, we, we all freaked out when uh, when COVID made us go to, to the internet, but suddenly we're, we're extracting the benefits of it and we're mm. creating, I think, a stronger engagement for making an interpersonal experience, even when people can't front up in person. I think this is terribly yeah. important. Terribly Ab- important. Absolutely. Now, speaking about engagement, we yes. would love to engage with you if you appreciate what we're doing here on our podcast. Podcast, come across to the scienceofpsychotherapy.net. That's our academy site. Become a member and um, engage with us. And uh, we've got a stack of course material and videos and articles. And of course, we're creating a community where we can discuss all of these things together. Absolutely. We try and, and satisfy the learning objectives of all the, the needs that you could possibly have. But more importantly, is where the community comes in and we teach each other uh, because everybody has got so much uh, specialty knowledge and expertise and and sometimes just a tidbit of knowledge, yeah. uh, which can be the springboard to, to great things. So right. come on over, join in with us, and uh, we always have a good time. We do. <laughs> All right. Thank you, everybody, for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast, and we'll catch you next time. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. For more great science, go to thescienceofpsychotherapy.com.